a remote fantastical kingdom far from Europe's chancelleries of power. An ancient castle where secrets are walled up. An unpopular monarch on the eve of his coronation. A ruling class of plotters and would-be usurpers. And a gentleman adventurer on holiday. No, not Ruritania in the 19th century, but the United Kingdom in the 21st. Stein's new book, The Prisoner of Windsor, is a contemporary inversion of Anthony Hope's classic, The Prisoner of Zender. In the original, an English gentleman on vacation is called upon to stand in for his lookalike, the King of Ruritania, at his coronation. Over a century later, a Ruritanian on vacation in London is called upon to return the favour and stand in for an Englishman in an absurd, fantastical kingdom where Brexit never quite happened. Plots are afoot. The Prisoner of Windsor by Mark Stein. Available in hardback and digital editions or for a personally autographed copy, go to steinonline.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along, May 26th, 2023. Uh, we always give the date for Tony Allwright in Dublin. And uh, I think there's one other person on the planet who demanded the date. Was it someone in New Zealand? Somewhere out there. Uh, May 26th, 2023. It is 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That is 4 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes. Half past four in Newfoundland. And beyond the Americas, 8 p.m. in London and Dublin, 9 p.m. in Paris and Berlin, 10 p.m. in... I'm not even going to attempt it this week. I got so little puff in me. It's Kiev. It was Kiev for years. In the same way that we say Paris and not Paris. It's, uh, it's, and Florence and not Firenze. Uh, there are English pronunciations of great cities and then the local pronunciations. 10 p.m. in Kiev and Moscow... Uh, now in the same time zone, not the same country. 10.30 p.m. in Tehran. <coughs> oh, pardon me. Oh, it's starting early. 10.30 p.m. in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone. Midnight 45 in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 3 a.m. in Singapore, Honkers and Perth. Very sorry about that. 5 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne. Still kind of sorry. 7 a.m. in Auckland. And a somewhat more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri in His Majesty's Dominions across the Pacific. 450 years ago today. 
May 26th, 1573, the Battle of Haarlemmermeer took place, part of the Eighty Years' War between Dutch rebels and their Spanish rulers. Four and a half centuries ago, it didn't go so well for the rebels. The Spanish won this day. It was a naval battle fought on Haarlemmermeer in North Holland. Haarlemmermeer means Haarlem's Lake. That's to say, a lake belonging to Harlem, by which I mean the Dutch town and not the Manhattan neighborhood named after it. I don't think the Manhattan Harlem has a lake. It uh, just has the uh, Hudson River. Um, you can't go and reenact the Battle of Harlem, if you're so minded, because they drained the lake in the 19th century. However, you can sort of fly into the lake because they built Schiphol Airport on it, which is what our pal Ava Vladingerbroek flies in and out of 30 times a week. Uh, we did uh, four great shows on the telly this week, and as a result, I'm not so great. But we're going to try and struggle through to the end of the hour. Uh, so let's get to your questions. Chris Davis writes, Mark... France has banned all short-haul flights where journeys can be made in under two and a half hours by train. This is a big story, a much bigger story than, you know, some bloke entering the presidential race in America, because this is your future checking in. France has banned all short-haul flights, says Chris Davis, where journeys can be made in under two and a half hours by train. The drip, drip, drip you can hear is the metastasizing of the erosion of our civil liberties. Uh, the blind and the eco-fascists cannot see the problem. If they think it will stop at France, think again. This is Agenda 2030, and the fix is in. Have I got it wrong? I hope so, but doubt it. Keep well, Mark. Yeah, Agenda 2030. 2030 is, what, seven years away? A lot of this stuff is checking in very early. Um, Chris is quite right. France has banned all short-haul flights where journeys can be made in under two and a half hours by train. I have a sort of personal interest in this, Um it's done its to lower, you know, France's carbon footprint or whatever it is. So, in other words, people are told these are commercially viable flight routes. This is a first for the developed world. These are commercially viable flight routes that, by order of government, cannot fly. That's quite a big thing. Uh, I take quite a lot of short flights. Back in the days when I used to guest host at Fox, I used to take a, a little uh, flight on uh, Cape Air from uh, New Hampshire down to Westchester County uh, when the Fox News driver would meet me. So I'm a kind of short flight, puddle jumper kind of guy. And I take an interest in this because, as you know, I was basically a prisoner of La République Française, uh, after my heart attack, they wouldn't clear me to fly long haul. So in other words, I couldn't go uh, back, I uh, couldn't take the f the flight from Charles de Gaulle to Montreal that I have flown for so many years and go back to my home in New Hampshire. And uh, but but interestingly, I was, you know, I was in not in good shape, although actually in rather better shape than I am now. And um 
while I certainly was very appreciative of my doctors in the south of France, uh, there, there were people close to me who wanted to arrange uh, second opinions and that kind of thing. And one of them was with a doctor in Paris. And uh, I believe actually a Canadian, I think a Canadian doctor, Quebecois doctor. And, um, and the flight for that, uh, the flight I was going to take... <laughs> Um, was one of those that has been cancelled, Lyon to uh, Paris Orly. And that's one of the flight routes that has now been declared illegal by Monsieur Macron uh, and one of those that are banned. And, and I supposedly could have taken a train uh, from Lyon to Paris. But you know something? I was in rough shape and I would much rather have taken just a little short flight than a longish train journey. So I don't regard this as a small thing. Our world is... Uh, Laura Rosen-Cohen talked about this in this week's Laura, Laura's Links. Our world is shrinking. And it's shrinking by the conscious actions of our rulers. And that was what was so interesting about covid when uh, suddenly, uh, as in apparently civilized countries in Canada, there, 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 there were prohibitions on crossing the borders between provinces. Uh, likewise, in the United Kingdom, the England, well, no disrespect to the Welsh, but, you know, England... Uh, Scotland and Ireland are kingdoms and Wales is a principality. So it doesn't have, it's not a sovereign entity in the way that Scotland uh, is. Uh, and uh, so Wales, uh, Scotland has its own legal system, Northern Ireland has its own legal system, etc., etc. Wales and England is Wales is part of the the uh, English legal system. And yet at the same time, mysteriously, there was a hard border between England and Wales during the COVID uh, at uh, points. Their, their deliberate purpose is that the world, our world should get smaller and more shrunken. And this French, this French thing, and France has the benefit of a generally pretty good rail system with high-speed trains and all the rest of it. Imagine if they were to try it in America. Uh, because I tell you something, if you can't fly from, uh, say, New Hampshire or Vermont to New York, you certainly don't want to be taking the train. Uh, no, uh, well, actually, yes, I do mean disrespect because the train service, the Vermonter is a pile of crap. I took the Acceler or whatever it's called, which is supposed to be the fast train. There was a strike or something. And a couple of years back, I thought uh, to take the train from Boston to New York, having heard so many nice things about Amtrak from Joe bloody Biden. It was one of the crappiest experiences I've ever had. This is the great... I Well, I, I say it's a great train nation. I only know it from train songs. I only know it from Atchison, Topeka and the Santa Fe and the Chattanooga Choo Choo. And I tell you something, if you take that crappy Joe Biden route, the Biden Express, it's lousy. It's garbage. It's awful. And they have these stupid pokey... I don't know why they bother cancelling well, they bother canceling the planes because the advantage of a train is you're going to have big panoramic windows and so they've got the stupid, on Amtrak, stupid train-sized windows. The whole thing is rubbish. 
But this French thing is not a small step. Ali M writes, Hi Mark, do you think that France has been chosen as a proving ground for the globalist agenda? No, we're all proving grounds for the globalist agenda. They try different things here or there. They're, you know, uh, fast-tracking the abolition of farming in in the Netherlands. They're fast-tracking the abolition of freedom of movement in France. They're doing pilot programs all over the map. Uh, they certainly seem to be speeding things along, says Ali M. What with the highly unpopular pension reforms, Macron pledging more military aid to Ukraine, and now the curtailing of short flights within the country. Yeah, but you know, all those things, uh, again, the pension reforms, uh, they don't bother with pension reforms in America because America can print U.S. dollars and can just turn, you know, whatever it is officially, $32 trillion of federal debt into $35 trillion and then $40 trillion and then $50 trillion. Uh, so they don't need to bother with uh, pension reforms. And obviously what Macron is pledging in military aid to Ukraine com- is as nothing compared to what the United States is dumping Uh, on the country. I also read yesterday, says Ali M, that parents in France are up in arms over the new sex education requirements in schools that give young children how-to lessons. Apparently, these are mandated for member nations in the WHO. It all sounds frighteningly familiar. What is your take on it? We are at one of those hinge moments of history. They tried the COVID and a lot and enough people went along with it, went along by which I mean not the disease such as it was, but with the overreaction to it, i.e. the lockdown of the economy, the ordering of people to stay in their homes, uh, the restrictions on freedom of movement, freedom of association, freedom of religion, and as I well know in my dispute with Ofcom, freedom of speech. But half the country went along with it very, very meek. And when I say the, quote, the country, I mean pretty much every Western nation, including ones you would have thought would not, such as the United States. The people who protested against it and pushed back against it did not really do so in sufficiently large numbers as to cause these people uh, to divert from their plans. Um, And... So that told them that they can get away with it. Now, if you take the rubbish they talk about climate change seriously, that the world is going to end and the planet is going to fry, then that certainly gives them as good a pretext for what they're doing uh, with freedom of movement in France as anything else. But it is a portent of tomorrow that, as I said, commercially viable flight routes are being cancelled in order uh, to uh, prevent the uh, rise of the sea levels in the Maldives in the next century. We are either mad 
or to be more specific, our rulers are either mad or evil. The notorious Mr. J, possibly not his real name, says, the action of the French government in banning short-haul flights is typical of the authoritarian top-down approach that Western governments are taking concerning the, quote, climate emergency. Matters are never subjected to open debate, never put on a ballot or argued in an election campaign. We, the public who must suffer the consequences, are never given the final say on such existential issues that will affect our future. What gives? Are our masters so contemptuous of true democracy or do they have something to hide? The final choices regarding risks, benefits and trade-offs should be ours and ours alone. Yeah, well, good luck with that. The interesting thing, as I always say, as I I think I said with Kate Hoey, Lady Hoey, who was on our show on, uh, I think it was Tuesday this week, and uh, I I made the point every time Brexit comes up, that every here we had a situation where, according to all the polls, it didn't really matter whether it was 48% or 53%, but basically all the polls showed that half the country wanted out of the European Union. Yet there was not a, uh, a major UK political party represented in the Palace of Westminster uh, that supported that proposition. The Tories were in favour of the European Union, Labour in favour of the European Union, Lib Dem in favour of the European Union, the Scottish National Party in favour of the European Union, Shin Bloody Fein, the great Irish secessionists, uh, so anxious to leave the uh, United Kingdom, set up a country exactly like it, they're in favour of the European Union. Very, very interesting. It's the same thing with net zero. The differences between the parties that are argued about in political discourse are absolutely trivial. You know, oh, the Tories are, are the Tories are in favour of lockdown, but according to Labour, they're not in favour of sufficient lockdown. We need even more lockdown. So you have a choice between the lockdown party or the even more lockdown party. And so it goes in Canada, so it goes in Australia, uh, and so it goes in large part with... Uh, a few individual exceptions, such as uh, Donald J. Trump in the United States. And as we saw with Trump, Trump ran on a populist program of issues uh, that the Republican base had not been offered in God knows how many election cycles. And then he gets elected. And for those first two years, when you had Trump in uh, the Oval Office, you had Paul Ryan in the House of Representatives, and you had Mitch McConnell in the Senate, and his own party ganged up to subvert those objectives. Which is why we just why most political talk is trivia. I was listening. I won't mention the name, but I thought, oh, I've got to familiarise my. We get so many questions on American politics. Um, I, I ought to familiarize myself a bit with what's going on. So I listened to a, a well-known American talk show uh, for a couple of hours. Today. I've never heard such trivia, absolute trivia. You know, as I said, as I said, this French thing is where we're headed. Uh, l- short-haul flights are... Uh, are banned. And as I said, I happen to relate to it because one of the flight routes that was banned was the one that 
was highly relevant to my recuperation uh, after my heart attacks. Uh, Brian from Minneapolis says, Minneapolis, such a sad town. Uh, I was just reading uh, today about these um, Somali riots at some high school in Minneapolis. You know, the cultural perception lag is always interesting to me because uh, everyone thinks of Minneapolis as uh, Garrison Keeler and the Mary Tyler Moore Show, and they don't realize that the mores of Mogadishu are now part of the Minneapolis way of life. A completely stupid thing to do to your own city, but Minnesota did it to themselves anyway. Brian from Minneapolis says, Dear Mark, can you discuss the desire from some in the, quote, conservative circle uh, who believe that DeSantis should be the one and not Trump? The people who want DeSantis sound like the people who were orgasmic over the, I can't do it, my voice is gone. Durham issued his report and my voice has died. Orgasmic over the Durham report. Do these people realize that if Trump was treated like DeSantis was in Florida, he'd be our president right now or don't they care? Well, there's a large part of the Republican base that doesn't care at all, Ryan. Because they've got, you know, the, if you do, what, what, it doesn't really matter whatever your issue. What's your, what's your issue? The open border on the southern border? Uh, the people who fund the Republican Party like the open borders. You know, I, 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 some of them are quite open about it. The Wall Street Journal is openly open borders. Uh, the Koch brothers, openly open borders. Uh, a lot, they're, they're openly open borders, some of them for very sound reasons because they want uh, cheap labor and all the rest of it. And so the, the, the donors want a donor class friendly candidate. And the, certainly the donor class, the donor class in 2016, it, there's people who say, look, be realistic about this. DeSantism, DeSantis is Trumpism without Trump. But there are differences because in 2016, the donor class steered the hell away from Donald Trump, and the whole point of the uh, the primary campaign was to find a, a was to unite around a candidate who could destroy Trump, and they could never find one. But during that time, all the money went to anyone but Trump. Trump spent less on his campaign than anyone since I don't know Benjamin Harrison in 1896, because because nobody gave him any money, and it turned out he didn't need it. Because what are people doing when they're giving you money? They're, they're buying your consent to certain uh, policy programs. Here is the thing to consider. The, the deep state, which is a thing, as we should all know, after the years between January 2017 and January 2021, the deep state is a thing. And uh, what it means is that in a hideously corrupt country, disgustingly corrupt, corrupt to a, degree, to a degree Americans should be thoroughly ashamed of. So the executive branch subverts the so-called head of the executive branch, the president. That's what happened between 2017 and 2021. Now, did they do that because they didn't like Trump's tweets, or did they do that because they didn't like Trump's determination to change the trajectory of the United States. 
Well, uh, I would say that uh, the latter uh, exercise their minds rather more than the mean tweets did. So let us suppose that people are right, because on certain things, for example, when he talked about immigration the other night, uh, DeSantis talked a good game both about illegal immigration and legal immigration. So if we are to take the rationale for his campaign, that he is Trumpism without Trump, what do you think the deep state is going to do to him uh, in the event that he does actually reach the Oval Office? That's a very interesting question, uh, Brian. By the way, I should say, I don't think this actually is going to... I think the, you know... Here's the, here's the thing. Uh, the Democrats are now finding... If you've ever known uh, political staffers, and I've met a lot of them, uh, it, it wasn't a thing I was really aware of because... Uh, until a couple of years ago, they didn't really exist uh, in uh, the UK or Canada or Australia the way they do here. But if you met political staffers, uh, you'll know that actually people like Joe Biden and uh, Dianne Feinstein and uh, Fetterman from Pennsylvania, these are the ideal political candidates. These are basically husks of human beings who are the creatures of their minders. So they're the opposite of Trump. Biden could barely run in 2020. He, he campaigned from his basement. He is actually supposedly, quote unquote, governed from his basement. He spends more time in his home state than any president uh, has ever done in the annals of the republic. So uh, they figure, what's the diff? Yeah, he couldn't handle, uh, he can't, he's not really up to a second term, but he wasn't up to a first term. So what's the difference? We can get him across the finish line and people are buying it. They see Fetterman sitting there at some Senate hearing in his shorts and hoodie, unable to speak. They see Dianne Feinstein, apparently unaware which state she's been in for the last three months. See, they see Biden uh, praising Nancy Pelosi for having saved America during the Great Depression. And nobody minds because better the brain dead than people with dissident thoughts about changing the trajectory that is destroying the United States, which is what Donald J. Trump was elected to do. So I think they're pretty confident they can drag the dead husk of Joe Biden uh, across the finish line a second time. Um, as you can tell, I'm uh, having a bit of problems with my voice. Um, so uh, let us pause for our brief musical respite from the hell of the headlines. Tina Turner died on Wednesday, a great American singer. Oh, no, wait, she wasn't American at all these last 10 years. I didn't know that until after her death. But three decades back, she bought a chateau 
on the shores of Lake Zurich in Switzerland, and in 2013 she decided to become a Swiss citizen. Uh, And that's way more difficult than becoming Canadian or American. You have to have some serious knowledge of Swiss history, and you have to be convincingly fluent in the dominant local language in your corner of Switzerland, which in this case would have been German. Uh, But Miss Turner passed and became a Swiss. And this wasn't just like a lot of us have been doing in the COVID years. As I was saying, I'd been doing myself, acquiring extra passports of convenience to assist us across the ever more mercurial frontiers that now obstruct freedom of movement in our world of uh, contagion and control. Uh, That's to say, six months after becoming Swiss, Tina Turner went to the American embassy in Bern and formally renounced her U.S. citizenship, saying she no longer had any ties to the United States, which um, I think is a sad thing to say about the land of your birth. But uh, there we are. Uh, What did Miss Turner like about Switzerland? Well, the mountains are high and the rivers are deep. I was a little girl, I had a rag doll, only doll I've ever owned. Now I love you just the way I love that rag doll, but only now my love has grown, and it gets
George Harrison declared that, quote, a perfect record from start to finish. You couldn't improve on it. He's right. But it only got to number 88 on the Billboard Hot 100, and it was its success overseas that saved it. Number three in the UK, number nine in the Netherlands, number one in Spain. River Deep Mountain High by the then husband and wife team of Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, and the subsequent convicted murderer, Phil Spector. Ellie Greenwich told me that she and Jeff wrote it, and Spectre wound up with an author's credit just for all his wall of sound stuff, which I hope is true. Uh, Spectre was an awful man, and I don't like to think of the guy who murdered Lana Clarkson, a sweet and trusting lady, having a hand in such a great song. Spectre had seen the Ike and Tina Turner review live and went round to see them uh, at their home because he wanted to put Tina Turner's voice with that big wall of sound. He had no use for Ike, but Ike insisted as part of the deal that all the records were credited to Ike and Tina Turner, even though he had sod all to do with them. Phil Spector abused her during the session. Ike abused her after the session, so both guys got their peace. You can see why she was glad to settle on Lake Zurich. Rest in peace, you Swiss miss. You like... Deep rivers and high mountains? Wait till you see Montenegro. This is Mark Stein. After three years in Covid Stan, it's time to get out of town. So join me on the 2023 Mark Stein cruise, sailing from Italy to Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, for a full week of sun, sea and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe, and we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. Yeah, the uh, beautiful Adriatic with Ava, Leilani, Alexandra, Dominique, and many more. Can't beat that. Mark Stein Cruise. Uh, .com. It is uh, 26 to 9 British summertime, a little behind, a lot ahead, according to where you chance to be on this turbulent earth. This is uh, Mark Sines Clubland Q&A live around the planet. Let us get back to your questions. Kelly Harbison says, words do not express my disappointment with Ron DeSantis. We elected him for a second term as governor. Uh, this would be in Florida, with the understanding that he would serve until 2026, not start running for POTUS less than halfway through his second term. Disappointed enough to refuse to vote for him, although I already have done so twice. Well, these are <clears throat> early days. As I keep remarking, uh, it's actually very weird to have a, a, a an open primary with this few contestants in it. There were, what, what, were there by this equivalent of point in the 2016 cycle, 19 or something? Uh, the, the, uh, the, the main streets and town commons of New Hampshire are comparatively deserted like nothing I've ever seen. Uh, there were no real... You, I don't take Tim Scott as a serious candidate or Nikki Haley 
as a serious candidate. But it is interesting to me that if uh, the idea was, as in 2016, we're desperate to find someone to unite against Trump. Uh, I'm not sure that DeSantis is going to be the guy for them. Drew Weber says, Hello, Mark. Trump is following the Democrats' script by attacking DeSantis on entitlements. Would expect better from Trump. The sad facts are that outlays for Social Security and Medicare exceed taxes received from these programs by over $1 trillion, a large contributor to deficit spending. Government accounting allows politicians from both sides to claim these programs are solvent due to so-called trust funds. However, excess taxes paid for entitlements in the past have been spent. The only way the trust funds pay back into entitlement programs is by borrowing or printing money. How did we go bankrupt first gradually, then suddenly? Drew, I'm sorry to laugh. I just hadn't heard that Social Security trust fund thing since I think it was Al Gore 20 years ago. Uh, You know, there is no... Look, I've been saying it since I published After America in... uh, 2012. America is the broke, brokey, brokest entity that has ever existed in the history of planet Earth. It is broke on a scale that nobody knows uh, and has ever known. And it has to pay back more money than anybody has ever paid ever. And if you ever bring that up with anyone in Washington, You can tell from the uh, glassy-eyed look in their eyes that they have no serious intention of ever paying it back. But, but, uh, just the interest on the debt has rocketed during the Biden years. uh, Since 2020, it's now up over uh, $600 million billion. Um, So, you know, that's just the interest on the debt. That's just servicing the debt. That's when you get your MasterCard bill at the end of each month and you can't afford to pay down um, any of the actual debt, but you, you pay the, you pay MasterCard the interest on it. Um, So the interest on the debt now that uh, America is paying each year on the debt is bigger than the the budgets of biggish countries. You know, I'm not saying it's bigger than the budget of uh, G7 members, but it's bigger than the budgets of the countries on the brink of the G7. Spain, for example. Uh, which at one point had a bigger uh, GDP than Canada and felt that it should have been in the G7 rather than Canada. The interest on the federal debt is bigger than the budget of Spain. Uh, The the total uh, government expenditures of Spain, it's bigger than the uh, government expenditures of Australia and then some. And as I said, this isn't to pay down any of the debt. Well, because there's no prospect of doing that. This is just to uh, service the interest on the debt. You know, um, who was it? Uh, I think it was a Milton Friedman line. 
uh, that uh, a debt is always paid, right? Um, if you uh, lend a uh, hundred bucks to Fred, you hope that Fred is the one who pays the debt by paying you back the hundred bucks. But if Fred doesn't pay you back the hundred uh, bucks, then who pays the debt? You do. We are on the brink of something absolutely catastrophic happening to America and the known world the longer this goes on. John Fatchy says, great title, Mark. What title? <laughs> I don't have a title. Do I? Have they given me an earldom or something? I'm way overdue. Uh, I have no idea what that's a reference to. John <laughs> says, ironically, I found the Partridge family on streaming last night. And in the discussion of Shirley Jones and her sons, David and Sean, I couldn't remember Sean's hit song. That would be, yeah, actually, uh, the Partridge family. Thank you for mentioning Shirley Jones. I, I think I'm supposed to be doing an event with Shirley Jones somewhere. I, I adore uh, Shirley, not so much for the Partridge family, but I adore her. Uh, for things like the film of The Music Man and Oklahoma and uh, Carousel and all the rest of it. Uh, and um, and also for a rather steamy movie that she made in the late 60s. What was that? Uh, what was that called? The Happy Ending, I think it was called. Anyway, thank you for bringing up... I love Shirley Jones's voice. And uh, I adore Shirley Jones. I'm, I can't remember what it is now, but uh, it, I sort of saw it across the transom. I'm supposed to be doing something with Shirley Jones somewhere or other in the next a few months. Anyway, enough of uh, Shirley. Uh, John says, on the beer conversation... <laughs> oh, you know, we got a little more, Shirley. On the beer conversation, in my opinion, the greatest American common beer was brewed by Shirley's granddad in Smithton, Pennsylvania, my grandma's hometown, and it was my granddad's favorite beer before mine. Uh, okay, I will remember that, John, and uh, I will see if when we are supposed to be together at whatever this thing is, if we can't get some of Shirley's granddad's beer to wash down. On the subject of Ron and Don, Ron is being dismissed for the same reasons as Trump was in 2016, but he has the advantage of procuring what many believe to be the most later livable state in the union. I think Ron's strategy should be what is counterintuitive to the experts. I hope he learns from Ted Cruz's mistake of trying to match Trump's aggression. Ron needs to stay cool, give Trump the credit he deserves, and charm. America, as Muhammad Ali did in the Congo. <laughs> this is a fantastic. I love this. The cultural references in this one question from uh, the Partridge family to Muhammad Ali in the Congo. Uh, he needs to let his opponent punch himself out. The folks who know me who think I'm a Trump fanatic don't realize that I was a Cruz guy. Trump outplayed Cruz on substance and the wisdom of age. I just give Trump the credit he is due. The best gift to the men and women who have lost their lives for our freedom is to remove Biden from office, plain and simple. I cannot emphasize this enough. 
I would love it if the American election system were what it purports to be. I mean, I don't particularly love it because I think it's a waste of time. But the idea is that you spend two years uh, starting in Iowa and New Hampshire and you have to try because Iowa's a caucus system. So you got to go to every Iowa county and there are 357 of them or whatever it is. I know, I know it's only 99 or whatever. And then you at the same time, you got to be in New Hampshire, you got to be doing the pancake flip, you got to be dancing at the county fair, you got to be all the rest of it. And the idea is that you do that and the public gets to know you and uh, it is not possible for a fake candidate uh, to emerge from that pro process untested uh, by his contact with the masses. And we had a perversion of that last time because Joe Biden didn't do any of that. He just stayed in his basement and when he came out, he was a disaster. And it worked for the people who run the country because the country is deeply corrupt and the unconstitutional changes made to accommodate mail-in voting and all the rest of it are largely in place. And as I always say, um, you don't, they always say, here's what I, creeps me out, creeps me out. I, it's actually a loathsome thought. Um, you don't need widespread fraud. I've explained this many times since the day after the election. You just need narrow spread fraud, basically in, in six big cities in six swing states. And if you do enough narrow spread fraud in those cities, you can turn the election, I say. Now, what we have from Bill Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, as he then was, he said that he hadn't seen anything like sufficient fraud to change the result. And this is an interesting concession to me, because what they say in, say, Denmark, uh, where they don't have election fraud. So in Denmark, if you ask them about election fraud, they oh, no, we don't actually have that. And it's true. Um, but in the United States, what they say is, yes, what people like Bill Barr say and people like CNN say and people like Fox News say, is, oh, yes, we do have election fraud, but don't worry, it's not enough to change the result. Yeah, OK. It's not enough to change the result until the day it does. So the tolerance for election fraud uh, that doesn't change the result is not, to me, a persuasive claim about the integrity of American elections. As I said, I'm sick of the bollocks. Don't wave your constitution at me because your constitution has enabled all of this corruption. Um, but the fact is, that's what they're saying when they acknowledge that there is, oh, yes, we haven't seen enough fraud to change the result. That's not what they say in Denmark. And it's an interesting difference. Um, Joseph Dornish says, Hi, Mark. Any updates on the Michael Mann lawsuit? And when is volume two of A Disgrace to the Profession um, uh, coming out? That would be, uh, I did uh, a couple of years ago now, I did A Disgrace to the Profession the world scientists, in their own words, a 
uh, on Michael E. Mann, His Hockey Stick and Their Damage to Science, Volume 1. And you're right, we're a little overdue for Volume 2. I can give you an update on the Michael Mann lawsuit because I was actually in a court hearing yesterday. You can imagine how thrilled I was about that. Uh, But the judge... Uh, actually set a new court date. And uh, as I, he says it's firm, but that's what he said about the last court date. It's supposedly going to be October the 30th or November the 6th. The new trial, the trial, the trial, is scheduled to start on October the 30th or November the 6th last, this, <laughs> what do I mean last year? This year. Uh, and he says that's a firm date. So we might try and rush out volume two of a disgrace to the profession uh, before we get going. Chris Hall says, Hi, Mark. This morning I read a very well-reasoned blog post on how corporations slid down the slippery slope of having to support so-called good causes. In the old days, corporations forbade any advocacy by employees on company time, even for innocuous things like the local school bake sale. However, gradually companies started supporting good causes, but unfortunately progressives and the radical left were the only ones who were allowed to designate what was good. The ESG scores put teeth in the rage that could befall any company willing to stand up to pressure. But after the Bud Light and Target fiascos, I'm sure many corporate heads are regretting the toboggan ride toward virtue and wokeness. Can anyone put this genie back in the bottle? I wouldn't really particularly agree with... Uh, that I think the the fact is that uh, I always quote that conversation I had with uh, Tom Wolfe in the uh, delightful uh, Cafe Carlisle at the Carlisle Hotel in New York. Uh, and Tom Wolfe, as you know, he'd researched all this for uh, his book, I Am Charlotte Simmons, Political Correctness on Campus. And his thing was, his position was, we talked about it, that all these kids just sat there in class rolling their eyes at what we then call political correctness rather than wokeness. And the minute they graduated and they had the old little bit of sheepskin to nail on the wall, they completely forgot about it and got on with their lives. And I said it struck me that that was highly unlikely. And now, in fact, uh, the entirety of America And much of the rest, certainly of the English world, is like one big, giant, crappy college campus where all the so things that just used to be stupid things. I mentioned that I was in a uh, a court uh, hearing yesterday, and I noticed uh, just from being copied on some email or other that some uh, lawyer uh, had might might actually have been one of my lawyers. Uh, had had their pronouns in the sign-off. So that was just something stupid that used to be confined to university faculties and is now uh, something uh, done by $800 a lawyer, uh, an hour lawyers. The people who run these companies believe this stuff and they hate their customers. 
And that's true, you know, and it doesn't really matter whether, oh, yeah, I'm not one of those sissy Nancy liberals. I, I, I don't, uh, I, I like country music uh, and I like going to Chick-fil-A and I watch NASCAR. And they all hate you too. That's how widespread it is. They all hate you and once in a while they forget and they actually say up front, oh, we hate you. Oh, you like drinking blokey beer. Oh, blokey beer. That's my favorite kind of beer. I love me to get a six pack of blokey beer and drink blokey beer. Oh, well, wait, what's this? They've got some woman with a penis advertising blokey beer now. They hate you. And it doesn't matter whether it's the things that have a, an obviously uh, left-wing affect uh, or things that supposedly appeal to uh, a, a right-wing cultural affect like NASCAR and country music. They all hate you. They all hate you. You're going to have to have a more fundamental rethink uh, than that. Eric Dale says... Mark and fellow club members, are we the fools who sold the communists the rope that they will hang us with? For years, conservatives have told ourselves that a rising tide lifts all boats and that by empowering the business community with tax cuts and favorable regulations, that the job creators would unleash widespread prosperity for everyone. At the very least, businesses just wanted the freedom to conduct their business without interference by the government. But lately, it seems more and more companies are actively supporting the left, from Miller Lite to Bud Light to now North Face, even Butch companies are flying the rainbow flag. It seems like ESG did more in the last year than the Soviets ever did in their decades in power for the left. Did the carried interest deduction that National Review defended so eloquently replace the funding for the left they used to get from the communists? No, I think it's that. I think it's more basic than that. I would say. I think you know. I've I've always said uh, for years and years and years that culture trumps politics. In the end, the culture is where the action is, and politics plays catch up. And in today's world, and I think that's actually one of the things that's changed over the last century plus since the rise of mass media, particularly mass uh, broadcast media that can be instantly in your home. And I think that means that in that sense, culture trumps business too. Um, so, that, uh, so that businesses, uh, it's, more, it's more important for businesses to be culturally aligned uh, with the zeitgeist uh, of the moment. Um, and I think this is heading somewhere. No, and, and incidentally, I'm not even sure there is business in the sense you described it. Uh, rising tide lifts all boats and all the rest of it. We now have businesses that are beyond nations, uh, except as far as the Chinese Communist Party is concerned, where they're very concerned to stay in tune with them. I had a conversation with this uh, with John McGurk, who's Irish on the Mark Stein show a while back looking at how weird it was at businesses virtue signaling on Ukraine, for example, and pulling out of Russia. And I remarked to him just because it happened to pop into my head about the Irish Free State's Control of Manufactures Act, which off the top of my head was around, uh, I don't know, 1937, something like that. Uh, and as a result of that, Guinness, you know, the great Irish beer, since we're talking beers, 
A way better beer than Bud Light, I will say that, but Guinness, the great Irish stout, moved its corporate headquarters uh, from Dublin to London. That wasn't anything to do with politics or culture or virtue signaling. It wasn't anything to do with having uh, a preference for uh, England over the Irish Free State. It was just a bottom-line business decision. And everybody uh, who understood it as such, nothing to do with anything else except the bottom line. And businesses like that are increasingly rare now. Uh, It's more important to virtue signal. Uh, And again, as I said, I've said for years, culture trumps politics. I think we can see from the last few years that culture trumps business. Actually, when I mean culture, I don't even mean culture like movies, because in Hollywood, uh, the zeitgeist, the vibe, uh, trumps actual uh, movies, you make. Disney makes crap complete crap. It destroys everything it touches. But it doesn't matter because they think they're in tune with the money. They wreck their own, they disfigure their own, uh, uh, their, their own great legacy in these hideous remakes of things like The Little uh, Mermaid. So, you know, th- th- this, this is a very weird time uh, in humanity where they would rather destroy themselves and take the hit then say, oh, uh, we're making a bear for men, uh, you know. They're not even doing it's, it's too, It's too pathetic to talk about. Timothy McDonald says, Mark, how did you come across Leilani Dowding? Were you in a green room together? County fair, equestrian show. Please elaborate as it will give you a great opportunity to flack your cruise. Thanks and don't die on us. Leilani's going to be on her, our cruise. I... I um, I wish I had bumped into Leilani uh, at a point-to-point or at the county fair. Um, I just happened to see her on TV being interviewed, and she was being interviewed as a former Page 3 girl, more or less. Um, But at one point, she brought up something about lockdown and uh, vaccines or whatever it was. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then I had a look at her uh, Twitter feed and I invited Leilani on the show. And I thought she was so good that I then just, you know, said to her, would you like to come on every week? And it has been one of the great pleasures of my life having uh, Leilani on every week. She is... I she I'm I'm so grateful to her. As you know, the last show I did on GB News was uh, December the first uh, last year, and I had four guests on that show. I had Leilani, I had Ava Vladinger Broke, and I had Alexandra Marshall, and I had Toby Young. And as you know, when I returned, not on GB News, I had Leilani, I had Ava, I had Alexandra. And crappy old GB News got Toby Young. And I am happy to say that is one of the greatest divorce settlements in the history of divorce. And I'm very great. I think I came out way on top there. Richard uh, Borzichowski, I hope I pronounced that correctly, says... 
Greetings, Mark, and wishing you continued recovery from your coronary palpitations. In all the hoopla with the royal coronation, I see no mention of our Queen's beloved corgis. Are they going to be relegated to the royal dog pound and see the King Charles Spaniels running around Windsor Castle? Well, one of the most moving moments uh, of the Queen's funeral was when her two corgis, uh, the footman holding her two corgis, they came out on the, uh, I think it was the port, under the port cochere of Windsor Castle as her funeral carriage came past the door and went down to St. George's Chapel. Uh, the Queen was very concerned because the queen used to have lots of corgis and as uh, she aged she became concerned and she did not want uh, dogs her dogs to outlive her so uh, this would be about 20 years ago i would estimate going from memory here she she ceased all breeding from her corgi's bloodline uh, which she had been breeding from since her first corgi uh, during the Second World War. And she had corgis, and she also had what they called dorgies because she'd managed, I don't know whether this was deliberate, but a corgi had managed to breed with uh, princess, her sister, Princess Margaret's Dachshund, and uh, she called those dorgies. So it was actually a rather small number of uh, dogs that survived her, and I believe they have gone to live... Uh, with the Duke of York, that's Prince Andrew, uh, in um, in the uh, on the outskirts, wherever he lives in Windsor Great Park, I think he is that house. The, he built a dreadful house with uh, Fergie, his missus, uh, <laughs> the Duke and Duchess of York, that resembled the house that the Ewing family lived in in Dallas. And the Fleet Street Papers used to call it South York instead of South Fork. Anyway, I believe that is where the dogs, uh, the surviving dogs, are now uh, living. A, a little more, I've, I've found it a rough go in this week, and I thank you for bearing with me uh, if I've been a bit under par. But we'll have a little more music to close. Ed Ames died this week, at the grand age of 95, I spent a very pleasant week with him on a National Review cruise a few years ago. He was a fan of mine and his missus even more so. And I was a fan of his and his marvellous, rich singing voice. Such a beautiful voice. Uh, and I just love to hear him sing ballads. You'll know if you listen to my show on Seven Aid Radio, our song of the week. Uh, a few weeks back, uh, I played his version of uh, "Try to Remember," uh, which I uh, which I particularly uh, love. He started with his, uh, and I think actually, also in uh, just the other week, I actually played. Uh, Another one of his, uh, from his brother's days, uh, the Hawaiian War Chant. He had started with his siblings as part of the Ames Brothers, uh, and they had a ton of hits in the 50s. And after they broke up, he began a successful solo career, not just as a singer, but as an actor. He played Mingo 
the Cherokee Indian on the TV show Daniel Boone. And he was certainly a lot more convincing as a Cherokee than Elizabeth Warren. And he had way better cheekbones, as I had the pleasure of telling him. Uh, And in the course of playing Mingo, Ed got rather good at throwing a tomahawk. Uh, So one night he was booked on The Tonight Show and Johnny Carson asked him to demonstrate his skill with the tomahawk and they brought out a life-size cutout of a cowboy and put it up on the other side of the stage. And Ed hurled his tomahawk across the stage and it hit the target right in the poor fellow's groin with the shaft pointing upwards. And what followed, I believe, still holds the record for the longest sustained laugh by a live audience in American television history. And Ed was about to walk over the stage and retrieve his tomahawk, but Carson restrained him (laughs) uh, in order to let the wave of laughter continue to roll over the crowd. It was huge. And then he looked at the tomahawk jutting out from the crotch and said to Ed, I didn't even know you were Jewish. (laughs) And then added, welcome to Frontier Briss. (laughs) Frontier Briss. Johnny loved that sketch and played it over and over and over through the decades. Here is... Dear Ed Ames, without his tomahawk, a top ten single from 1967 with Ed in fine voice. Sometimes in the morning when shadows are deep, I lie here beside you just watching you sleep. And sometimes I whisper what I'm thinking of, my cup runneth over with love. Sometimes in the evening, when you do not see, I study the small things you do constantly I memorize moments that I'm fondest of My cup runneth over with love
Ed Ames with a number eight single that was also the title song of a top four album, somewhat uh, counterintuitively in the otherwise psychedelic Summer of Love, 1967. My Cup Runneth Over uh, was written by Harvey Schmidt and Tom Jones for a modest musical, I Do, I Do, one set, two persons, but they were Mary Martin and Robert Preston, so who needs anyone else? That record by Ed Ames is a year younger than Tina Turner's, but belongs to a lost world. Rest in peace, you gentle giant. Stick with Stein Online this weekend for Rick McGuinness on the movie beat, Tal Backman on the Backman beat, and some Memorial Day observances. Ed and the Ames brothers will take us home. Stay safe, stay free, stay well. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.